I like the one shaped like Barney Rubble. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. This episode is recorded on February 25th, 2020. I'm Chadwick Matlin, deputy editor here at 538. Sarah Ziegler, your usual... Sherpa is in Florida, uh, seeing the Twins do spring training things, and I'm sure cheering on the Astros while the rest of the crowd boos if she's at an Astros game. With me in the studio, it's Neil Payne, senior sports writer. Hi, Neil. Chad, welcome back to Hot Takedown. You know, it's a pleasure. Um, the grooves in the seat are still here from the last time I was on Hot Takedown. Which is weird because, well, okay, the last time you were on, not yeah. the last time you hosted. Not years I was ago, gonna say, no. Years ago, you hosted. Shout out to Kate Fagan also. You know, we're, we, we've got part of the old team back here. It's true. But in the Kate role, it's Jeff Foster. Jeff, do you have a college basketball career we don't know about, like Kate Fagan, our old uh, panelist? Is that my role? Yeah, what was your what was your career free throw percentage? Did you ever make, uh, what was it, like 50-plus yeah, consecutive like free throws? I will tell you right now, I'm not sure I've ever made a free throw in a competitive situation. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk... Is this is this right? We're we're gonna talk hockey. Is this, do I have this right? I think we're gonna talk a lot about hockey. Uh, Alex Ovechkin scored his 700th goal over the weekend, and he is well on his way to Wayne Gretzky's record. But if he were playing when Gretzky did, would he have already reached it? A question that seems to be hypothetical, but actually gets to the heart of the way analytics change our understanding of sports and greatness. Then we'll be joined by The Athletic's Meg Linehan to discuss the recent developments in the U.S. women's national team's lawsuit against the United States Soccer Federation. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into the data with our rabbit hole of the week. Get this, guys. It's about hockey. This a, is a double What a surprise. Show. Me and Jeff, finally, when Sarah's away, Jeff and Neil shall play. We might as well be recording in Ottawa. Alex Ovechkin became the second youngest player to reach 700 goals over the weekend, second behind only some guy named Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky holds the all-time regular season goal record of 894, and Ovechkin is on pace to hit that before he turns 40. Hockey players play that long, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yager was playing when he in his early 40s. Yager's still playing somewhere. But sports are not static how they're played changes over time, and players' individual stats are the product of the era they play in. So, for example, if Ovechkin were playing in Gretzky's day, maybe he'd have even more goals by now. Here's Gretzky on the difference between his day, his era, and Ovechkin's. It's tougher to score now. I'm the first guy to sit here and tell you, I played in the right era. It's harder to score points now than it was when I played. Let's start with that take. Jeff, is this era of the NHL really so different than Gretzky's much different they scored a lot more goals just in general let's look at 1981-82 they were averaging over four goals a game that was a league average Gretzky had something ridiculous I think he had 90 92 92 goals goals. which is the all-time record that's the all-time record that is absurd um and uh, for a lot of reasons it was a totally different game the goaltenders for one you just look at a photo from back then and they look about half the size. It looks like if you took two goalies from 1982 and put them next to each other side by side and they had their arms around each other, that would be about the size of a goalie today. 
roughly because of the size of the pads and also just the size of the athletes. I mean, some of these guys are gigantic. It's not even comparable. This season, just to kind of put things in context, you you mentioned that in 82, the league scored about four goals a game. This season, they are scoring a little bit more than three goals per game, which is the highest it's been since 2006, which happens to have been Ovechkin's rookie season. So Gretzky's peak season saw 32% more goal scoring than this year, which is the best scoring environment that Ovechkin has had in his whole career, and he's 34 years old. Uh, and then if you look at the average throughout their careers, it's a pretty similar differential where they scored 3.5 goals per game in the league during the entirety of Gretzky's career. That's 23% higher than the average during Ovechkin's career, which is 2.85. It will not surprise you guys because you know my stance on sports, which is that records are just factoids and all that matters is the narrative game to game. Here's my question about records. Given that eras do matter so much should we put stock in any record like what 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 is a record really telling me given that the eras do change there's a part of fandom that i think the instinct is to look at the leaders the all-time leaders in a particular category that we deem to be meaningful and we want to look at the the people that accumulated the most of those things that we have deemed to be meaningful and automatically at least assume that they are among the best players ever, if not the best players ever. Uh, and I think also we we want to sort of pretend that the game that we're watching now is basically the game that we fell in love with when we were kids and we've watched our whole lives and that, you know, you can kind of squint. And yeah, the goalies have changed. They're they're bigger. They have pads uh, that are much larger. Uh, they they play with a style that really is is very different and alien to goalies from the 1980s and before. But it's still like romanticism that we have about sports, where we want to sort of believe that they're static for for like personal reasons about what it means to us to watch these sports. And so as a consequence of if you can convince yourself that it's static, then you can also look at the records from different periods of time and convince yourself that they can be compared apples to apples with each other. But as we know, as savvy, statistically minded sports fans, you can't really do that fairly. Uh, and for all the reasons in hockey that we just mentioned, the game radically changing over time. I want to come back to that, but let, let's talk about what Ovechkin's record or goals would be versus Gretzky's when doing that error adjustment so we can understand the sort of practical reality of, of that kind of transition or transformation. One way of adjusting for era is to take into account the differing levels of scoring in the league every year and also things like schedule length. You know, in, in Gretzky's era, they played 80 games most of the time. Now they play 82 games. And if you go back further, they played like 70 games or, or fewer in some seasons in the past. So if you adjust for that, also like roster sizes, you would have uh, Gordy Howe would play 30 plus minutes a night. Gretzky played maybe like 20 minutes a night by the end of his career or, or fewer. Um, and so when you try to take into account all of that, you come up with this number hockey reference has that they have adjusted goals, adjusted assists, adjusted points and so forth that Ovechkin has 796 adjusted goals. That's third all time behind Gordie Howe and your friend Yarmir Yager and Gretzky only has 758 adjusted goals. So in a certain sense, 
according to the adjustments that you could put onto the numbers, Ovechkin actually passed Gretzky sometime last season. We can't pinpoint the exact moment when he got his 759th <laughs> adjusted goal uh, in history, but um, you know, sure it's a probably a big, big moment. moment for him. But that I think that sort of wry sardonic aside is exactly the point, right? Like these records would don't work when they're about something that's more complex than a very simple tally on a stat sheet. We know, for example, in the NBA that the more effort you put out on defense means that uh, you're going to be more tired on offense and and usage rate and all that sort of really um, there's a balance essentially between the two sides of, of the court. There's no record for player that was best with a usage rate above 35% or something that we're talking about day to day. I guess Russell Westbrook was appreciated for that, but I mean that's what the play index is for in oh basketball God. reference. But the point being that no one tell me Neil. Yeah. When's the last time you were at a bar and someone you were not there with said the word play index? Oh yeah, never. Okay. So there is a certain <laughs> value to these records. The trick is that we do know just enough to know that the records are sort of BS, right? And so there's this tension between that, which is we know enough to know better, but the thing that we know the most about actually isn't very enticing and intriguing. Yeah, no, uh, that's a great point. And and I would also add to that that I think going to Gretzky in the ridiculous era of scoring that he played in, I think we'd sort of expect most all-time records in a in a various stat to be set during a crazy outlier era. So in a way it's we we sort of intuitively know that players are the product of the times in which they play, the players around them, the coaching system, you know, all of these things. But they, we still want to filter all of that out and just pretend that these numbers are, you know, the be all end all in a lot of ways. Okay, I want to take a step back from hockey. I know you guys are upset about that but and talks cross sport whether whether these kind of error adjustments matter in in some sports more than others it seems like in hockey there's a very clear difference in era that you can point to with the number of goals scored and the size of the pads and, and all that and and they didn't even wear masks up until like the 70s you know consistently um so like the changes in technology allowed them to play a more effective style and they sort of played off each other okay so it seems to me like there are three tiers essentially of the way that sports change over time or three types of w- ways that that happens there's just general style of play what the fads are what's in what's not and that probably has something to do also with the level of talent that's in a league. Then there is technology that is changing, to, to your point. And we've seen this in swimming, especially if, if something, if the suits get lighter or more hydrodynamic, hydrodynamic. Um, then, uh, then that might increase things. Similarly, with nutrition and sleep, we see a lot of that with the way that athletes are being treated by their teams. And there's rule changes. And those three things can shift a sport and the norms of the sport or the sort of rhythms of the sport. And so when you start to expand out beyond hockey, I'm curious sort of how era adjustment takes all that into account with a sport, let's say, like like baseball. I mean, I would say that baseball in particular is tricky. I, in many ways, I, I sort of agree with what you were saying earlier about, you know, your sort of existential crisis on, on the point of records that they don't really matter. I think it goes on a record-by-record record basis. Um, baseball, I think, really 
like we learned this the hard way with the Maguire chase of Maris and then the Bonds chase of Aaron, where at the time, in the moment, those were big deals because baseball felt like it was kind of above this. It was such a simple, pure game that, you know, Bonds and Maguire and all these guys were doing things that hadn't been done in all these years. And then we sadly learned it was all because of performance-enhancing drugs and we had to discredit it. And now I don't think anyone really knows what to think about baseball records. I think the better comparison is football right now. If you look at the passing records that are just falling every year, and they're not a big deal. I mean, you look at the career passing leaders. It's Breeze. It's Brady. It's Peyton. It's all guys who play in the current era. And that is in many ways a combination of all those factors she said. But what's happening with Ovechkin, which is remarkable, it's like a complete reverse, is that he's defying his era and, and breaking a record that was set when Wayne had everything going in his favor. So in this case, it's actually quite unusual. It, it would be almost like, let's say, the passing era of the NFL was in Marino and Elway's days, and all of a sudden, Breezer Brady was, was breaking a record in the current running era of NFL football, which is the opposite of what it is. So, and real quick on baseball, what's funny about baseball is because the stadiums are different, adjustment is baked into baseball stats in the same season that everyone's playing, right? We, we have all sorts of things that adjust for park effects and all that. And so we know enough now that we don't even have to do that historically. We already know that there is such differential in where people play that we have to adjust the stats for that in and of itself. Yeah, and I think baseball already had more of a culture of numbers and you know kind of believing that the the players individual numbers meant something about who they were as a talent you know wise about who how how good they were and who they were as a person and who they were as a person you know that's why people are so offended that uh Barry Bonds had juiced you know we thought he was a great person before that you know I think in the NFL and the NBA we care less about these records anyway because we don't there's not that culture of like oh let's underline the big i mean could you guys even tell me off the top of your head what the all-time touchdown pass record was before breeze broke it i can't tell Um, you now because records don't matter but they but but they matter less you know i think people people knew the hank aaron you know, first of all, the the seven fifteen Babe Ruth number that he broke, but then also the seven fifty five uh, that that people were chasing, and and they knew sixty one. You know, for for Roger Maris, and so I think for whatever reason, maybe it's the culture of baseball, maybe it's the history. You know, caring about history is another reason why I think certain sports care more about numbers and records than other ones. It's because you know, trying to keep alive the traditions and history of the game. Baseball is definitely the most navel-gazing sport. Okay, let's quickly dwell on basketball because we haven't quite attacked that head-on. Is there era adjusting in basketball stats? I can't really think of it. There are like advanced metrics that do have era adjustments baked into them. Like you think about PER, not a great stat, but you know the league average in PER is always going to be 15 no matter what. And then if you go to something more advanced like Raptor, the average is always going to be zero points relative to an average player. So these these stats are automatically always sort of set where the league is self-contained and, and it's sort of relative to each other, which is the essence of adjusting for, for the environment. But I don't think there's like that intermediate step the way that there is with these Ovechkin stats where it's like, let's take someone's points per game 
and translate it to a different environment so we could compare Wilt Chamberlain with 50.4 points per game in 1962 to like James Harden today. Nobody really does that. I mean, you could do it. I guess in theory, you could look at like the share of all points that were scored in Philadelphia Warriors games in 1962 that Chamberlain himself scored and then look at the share of all points that Harden has scored in, in Rockets games and compare those. But I don't think there's an appetite for that because I think the the fans that you know like basic numbers and they're not reading too much into them because there isn't that culture of, of doing that necessarily in basketball they're just going to look at the points per game and you know have that be that and then for advanced metric connoisseurs such as ourselves here such as yourself chad you're distancing yourself from a love of advanced just, metrics Neil, don't assume why, why I are stance? you even hosting hot takedown at this point <laughs> i mean come on anyway so uh i i think I guess I'm on an island here in, in being a fan of advanced stats, but I would say <laughs> that, um, you know, what is the point of, like, if you're going to adjust Harden's points per game, you might as well do a bunch of other stuff in there. And we know that, you know, even if you adjusted points per game, usage patterns have changed for stars now relative to in the past. And there's a lot of other things, like hand-checking was allowed defensively in the 90s. Doesn't Alan Houston know it? Now it's not, yeah. Uh, and so... There's a lot of different ways, and I think basketball fans are more inclined to do these, like, in a barroom argument. You know, they're not bringing up the play index. They're not bringing up usage rate necessarily, although someday, maybe. But they're talking about stylistic factors of, like, you know, how would Jordan's mid-range game apply in 2020 where they don't take mid-range shots? Yeah, You know, and they talk about, like, these particular like thought experiments more than they would talk about like trying to adjust it because a lot of the thought experiments are kind of unquantifiable at their core i'm really looking forward to neil's second act in life being a bar owner and only allowing advanced stats conversations at the bar or you're out of there that's a great yeah if you if you mention batting average buddy i'm getting the bouncer (laughs) we're gonna have words all things considered, in the context of all these other sports, haven't basketball stats, you know, I mean, I think points per game kind of kind of hover around 30 to 35, and assists per game is around 10. Like, it does feel like a little bit more consistent than something like hockey or the NFL. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, the league leaders are relatively constant in those stats. Uh, and so maybe that would suggest that, like, the way that teams you know putting aside the styles that are getting them there that the game's fundamental like you know building blocks haven't changed that much but I just don't think that basketball fans even like think about it in a way like oh this player had more points per game so they're better I think it's like fodder for arguments more like you know I can use this stat if I want to prove that player a is better than player b but it's not sort of a referendum and again I think that the, the people that are inclined to kind of look past that, they skipped the step of adjusting the per game stats and they've just moved all the way on and just gone hog wild with crazy stats like Raptor. Let's bring it home and, and just sort of talk about whether era adjusted records are ever going to break through to the mainstream given this conversation. Because I used to think that stats like OPS would never break through because there was addition involved and addition is, is scary, not to mention the division that goes into slugging percentage. But these era adjusted things, it's not that crazy to explain that sports are different from era to era. So could you see, I don't know, a segment on sports center in which they talk about who was really the best given era adjustment 
I mean, I could see it be brought up as sort of like a, hey, check out this. You know, people, the nerds have tried to do what we're talking about, but never really taken, (laughs) you know, with the same sort of like gospel status that you would look at like a factoid. Because I think it comes down to what you said earlier is like we can see Ovechkin score his 700th goal with our eyes and know that it represents a discrete number of events that happened. And I don't think anything's ever really going to replace that when we're talking about records, at least uh, in the mainstream. You just want your work to be taken as gospel, Neil. That's that's what I heard just now. I mean, look, it's uh, I I would never say that adjusted stats should be taken at gospel because we we can do so much more adjusting. We have not yet begun to adjust, (laughs) Chad. I think it could happen, but it would. Ha- it, I think this happens so slowly. I mean, we're talking like twenty, thirty years. I, like you would never notice. It's not like overnight everyone's going to be talking about ERA plus, you know. But you do see small changes. Like you go to a baseball game these days, or you watch one on TV, and all of a sudden, a you know a batter gets up and they're showing his OPS, you know, right there on the screen, or they're putting it up on the scoreboard, or they're even showing his WAR on the scoreboard, which I've seen. That's wild to me that we've gotten to that point. But I think you do see a gradual change, essentially as the older baseball fans die out. I mean, you're not going to see it like in the course of one or two seasons. Such a progressive vision for the future of American sports. I'm so impressed. I I disagree. I don't think you're ever going to see it. That's neither here nor there. Let's leave it there for now and hear a quick word from this week's sponsor. That sponsor is Blue Chew. Plenty of men have performance issues at some point. If you're trying to avoid that, go to bluechew.com. Bluechew.com has the first ever chewable with the same active ingredients in Viagra and Cialis. You can take the chewables anytime on a full or empty stomach. And since they're chewable, they work faster. They're cheaper than the other options. And with Blue Chew's free online physician consultation and direct shipping, it's more discreet too. There is no need to go to the doctor's office or even spend time waiting in line at the pharmacy. So here's the deal. Visit bluechew.com and get your first order for free when you use promo code TAKEDOWN. Just pay $5 in shipping, but your first order is free. Again, that is bluechew.com, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, promo code TAKEDOWN. Okay, now on to our second segment, which is about the U.S. women's national team's lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Last week, players on the USWNT and the um, and the U.S. Soccer Federation itself filed motions for summary judgment in the latest episode of their ongoing lawsuit over equal pay. But what matters most to us is that there were some documents that were released that gave us more insight into how things are run for the uh, USWNT and, and their relationship with the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, but Neil and I are not uh, experts, shall we say, no, in we this matter. Not. And so we've sought out help from The Athletic's Meg Linehan. Meg, thanks for joining Hot Takedown. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's start with the basics. Do we need to know what a summary judgment is, or is this sort of just a sort of, you know, stopping point on on the road toward um, toward a resolution? Yeah, it's really more of a stopping point. It's It's very much a procedural thing. Discovery has now ended, and there was a deadline for both sides to file their request essentially to the judge to say, hey, no, you've seen everything. We're definitely the right side on this argument. You should just find for us, and we can skip the whole joy of a trial. 
So really just kind of this procedural element to the case. And if we zoom out on sort of where we're at in the process, what is each side sort of currently seeking in the case? Right. So on U.S. soccer side, they're basically asking, could you just please throw this out for us? Because there is no merit to the case itself. On the player side, it's a much more complicated picture. So they've actually asked the judge to have the sort of partial summary judgment for them, which would then only make the trial about how much money the damages that they would receive would be in play. And so I think the big part of what came out of these two um, kind of dueling motions is the fact that the players finally had some numbers around what they're looking for. And they actually hired an economist to go through and run the numbers and say, okay, if we were paid on the same contract as a men's national team player, and you add up all of these players that are within the the classes of this lawsuit, we get this number of $67 million, which is, I think, much larger than most of us were anticipating. And and has the um, the U.S. Soccer Federation offered some kind of like counter number or is it really just that like 67 million or nothing? 67 million or nothing wow. right at the moment is really what's happening. And also it's not just necessarily 67 million because, and this is where we get into some of the more fun legal stuff, but if they find that U.S. soccer has violated the players in terms of Title VII under the uh, under the Civil Rights Act, then not only could you potentially get that $67 million, you could also get a certain subset of damages under the Equal Pay Act, which would potentially even be a, like another 25 to $30 million. And then on top of that, the players would also seek punitive damages at trial. So that $67 million number is not set in stone by any say the imagination. And what's confusing here as well is that the um, the players feel as though they're entitled to back pay. But if, correct me if I'm wrong, Meg, the Federation says that they in fact have been paid more than the men over the past uh, decade or something like that. Right. So and what they're saying is if you actually line up just the, the number of players over the last five years, the women have been paid more, which factually is true. But it's also... If, what do you mean by number of players? So like if you if you take every single men's national team player that's been called up over the last five years and then every single women's national team player that's been called up over the last five years and then just tally those straight, like here's our salary numbers for both of those two groups, the women have been paid more. And part of that is because, A, they play more games, but B, they also win more games. So they've also won two World Cups Mm. over the past, you know, from 2015 on. And they've had two victory tours. So just by, you know, the state of the game itself, the women are playing more, winning more, and thus are paid more. But if you put it in the hypothetical of, are they being paid on a men's national team contract? Then that's that's the number that the women are currently trying to look at. So the women are asked are, are essentially suing because of the rate that they're being paid, but the federation says yes. that doesn't matter because of the summary stat, if you will, that the larger amount, the amount total that that's being doled out. Okay, right. What's complicating for me as a as a sort of lay, you know, person, lay fan, is the role that the CBA plays in all this, which is that w- the uh, women players, just like men players, agreed to a CBA. Um, and so theoretically, they knew what they were going to be paid. But is the issue here that they didn't know what the men were being paid at the time? So I think what the players are really trying to say is that they have never had a fair shake at negotiating a contract that would have ever put the or a CBA that would have put them in the same ballpark as the men. 
So when you read through the filing for the women, they're saying, we've been asking this essentially since 2004 to put us on the same sort of structure, because we're also fundamentally talking about two different structures. The women have a much more guaranteed sort of structure where you're essentially put on a contract for a year and you know, okay, you're going to get this number of call-ups and like kind of paid no matter what happens. Whereas for the men, it's always been this, essentially you get paid as you play or get called up, right? So the structures are very different and thus the CBAs themselves have always been very different. But what the women have kind of said this entire time is we've been trying to get ourselves in that general structure, right? Maybe with a little more security, that's a negotiation point, but we want this whole concept of we want to be more equal with the men and thus we are willing to put ourselves in that general like structure of if we get called up, we get paid. Basically, they've kind of been in this track that has thus prevented them from ever negotiating equal pay over the course of not just over the past five years, but I mean, over the span of a decade or two. And so the other part of this is that this lawsuit actually doesn't stem from their displeasure from the 2017 collective bargaining agreement that they negotiated with the Federation. They had actually um, put in a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 2016. And when that didn't get a resolution, they got clearance from the courts to then sue the Federation. So this actually goes back to 2016 before they even negotiated the collective bargaining agreement that they're currently under. And is there anything legally, and I know you're not a legal expert, but I'll ask anyway, that um, gets at, you know, in precedent, that gets at whether or not you are still entitled to equal pay, even if you agree to the unequal pay, essentially, that, that you're getting? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that essentially this is kind of what the Equal Pay Act and and the Title Seven uh, of the Civil Rights Act kind of get at is that if you are essentially prevented from ever negotiating there, like this is a remedy to correct that. So, and again, I'm not an expert as I as I like to joke on Twitter, I'm a medieval lit major who <laughs> decided to write about soccer for a living and then ended up having to cover this giant lawsuit. But it, you know, it, it does seem to at least track, in my opinion, that the court and in their opinion, especially the EEOC complaint was a legal remedy to correct some of the the longstanding negotiation that they've kind of been locked into. So that's definitely from the player side. And then on the federation side, I do think that their strongest argument is saying you negotiated this collective bargaining agreement. You are thus held to it. Well, I wanted to ask also about that, the Equal Pay Act specifically, because that does seem to be an area where the the Soccer Federation is sort of pushing back against um, the case that the players are making under this idea of substantially similar work. Uh, can you talk about the, the arguments that are being laid out by both sides, basically, under that? We, we kind of saw Carly Lord was put through this kind of insulting line of questioning <laughs> that uh, that that um, went viral on Twitter. But um, is, is that sort of the argument that the that the Federation is making is that it's not similar work between, you know, that, that the women's team is doing compared with the men? Right. And that's that is basically their argument on the equal pay side is that, you know, essentially the the men's national team and the women's national team play in two different establishments. They have two different technical staffs that, you know, it's essentially two completely different just versions of soccer, right? That the men nas- the men's national team plays in this other ecosystem than the women's national team. Whereas on the women's side, they're saying 
are we expected to have the same fundamental job responsibilities as a men's national team player, which is show up to training, represent the Federation, playing games, be physically healthy enough to play the sport of soccer. Yes. Like it is essentially, if not necessarily identical work, which is not a legal requirement that they have to prove, but it is fundamentally the same job responsibilities. They feel like that has been met. Whereas you're seeing on the Federation side and via the line of questioning through an attorney for U.S. soccer of saying, well, could the women's national team beat an under 18 boys team? Could they beat the men's national team? Could they beat Germany's men's national team? And that really stems out of, hilariously enough, this like one-off interview that Carly Lloyd did via an email thing through her agent where some random person was like, would the women's national team be able to play the German men's national team who had won the previous men's world cup? Could the like, U S men's just, national that, team beat the German men's the, national team? <laughs> Technically they did, but I think it was like the Germany men's national team, like C team. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is kind of this, I mean, you look at it from this common sense point of view and it looks ridiculous, but then you look at it from a legal point of view and it just to them, it is a viable legal argument to say that these are two different worlds and the teams cannot be compared because the men's national team takes different skills and abilities than the women's national team. I, I have a very basic question. What is the U.S. Soccer Federation going to do with the money if not give it to the U.S. women's national team? Like, I don't understand what they're saving it for or like or, or how it's Would so hard to get it, it to I, the men. Yeah, I don't that? understand that. No, not not necessarily. I mean, so they have their own budget, right? Of course, where it's not and it's not like US soccer is also just in charge of two national teams, right? Like they also have youth national teams, development academies, um paranational teams. They have I mean, US soccer is also in charge of essentially running the infrastructure of uh coaching and and youth play across the United States. Like they are a national governing body. They also have the 2026 World Cup that they are now going to co-host with Mexico and Canada. So there is, yes, a, a budget for the Federation, but is there an extra $67 million kicking around that could just get handed to the women for uh, back pay damages? I, I kind of doubt that. I'm sure most of that money is earmarked. They definitely have kind of this huge amount of savings that has been this number that's been floated around, but... Um, U.S. soccer has been very careful about that to say, like, well, A, we're already spending more money than we had originally planned in our budget on lawsuits. But B, you know, this is going to get used for the next five years on on X, Y, Z. So there is definitely a bigger picture that U.S. soccer as a governing body has to look to. I get that. I'm now editorializing. I'm now doing the hot take. But like if American society has shown anything, it is that there is plenty of money to go around for sports and they will be able to find $70 million if needed easily enough. But can we can we sort of zoom out about the impact that a ruling or a judgment or a settlement, whatever, um, might have about how to appraise um, the value of, of, of women, of female athletes in women's sports in general, because we saw recently a new CBA for the WNBA that, that really increased, um, the pay and, and power of the players, um, in, in that league, especially trying to cut back on the sort of two job status of a lot of the players where they had to go play in Europe, et cetera. Do, do you have an understanding of what it might mean for women's sports writ large if the, 
when the, the USWNT players win in some fashion, some type of um, judgment? Yeah, I mean, I think either way this case goes, it's going to have a huge impact on women's sports in general, because I think if U.S. soccer wins on this argument that women's sports are this other entity, right, and that men's sports are inherently better because men play a different game, that has a huge impact on women's sports in general, right? Whereas I think if the women win, and it, I think it, you also have to look at it as part of this larger background social movement, right? Like everybody's talking about Me Too, but there there is this bigger thing of women are attempting to a take up space, but also say like we have value and the work that we that we do has value. So I think that it does absolutely advance the conversation forward. I think that WNBA obviously is its own situation, but I think both are part of this larger movement that sports is only kind of a a small portion of, but only kind of inherently reflects the larger social movement that's at play. And, you know, I definitely think that there has been more communication between the sides. Obviously, um, Sue Bird from WNBA and, and USA Basketball dating Megan Rapino of uh, the U.S. Women's National Team and Rain FC of NWSL. Like those conversations even have played a huge role on both sides. So we're starting to see some of these these silos break down. And USA Hockey is also a part of this. I mean, the USA Women's Hockey teams uh, went on strike essentially for better play. They've influenced the U.S. Women's National Team. So it definitely, I definitely think a, a finding for the players in the situation only advances everybody's case that women's sports have value and should be both invested in and respected in a more meaningful way. And do you think the fact that this is sort of playing out in this particular moment in, in kind of a public fashion adds to the leverage that the women's national team does have in this sort of dispute with the with the U.S. Soccer Federation? Public opinion has played a huge role in this case, and it always has since, I mean, really, even since the team has put in the, the 2016 um, EEOC complaint, they know that they've had public support pretty much this entire time. But I think that there was something about, you know, the 2019 World Cup. I mean, I, I was in France for that entire World Cup, and I can tell you being in the stadium after they won the final against the Netherlands and hearing the equal pay chance come down, that's unlike anything I've ever experienced in sports. So the players are fully aware that they have the public support behind them. I think the Federation is also fully aware that the public support is behind the players. And I mean, you even read the opening of their, their um, summary judgment brief and it's, it's got this kind of snarky little one liner of, you know, despite the public narrative of this case, we have facts on our sides and that's that we've paid players more and that we, we have this CBA and all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely playing a role. Meg, I think we should leave it there. That was super interesting and very helpful to me as someone who's just sort of like reading a story here and there about about this ongoing case. Um, and so thanks for coming on Hot Takedown and, and chatting about it. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, listeners, you can see more of Meg's work and ongoing coverage of the case at The Athletic. And now, finally, our rabbit hole of the week. Because at 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some do not. We end each week's show with one. And a warning to listeners, it's also about hockey. 
Uh, if they made it through the Ovechkin segment, we didn't really talk that much about hockey. You know, it, we didn't even get into the actual Alex Ovechkin of it all. But go ahead. Coincidence, Jeff, or intelligent design? I know, but that's fine. I agree with that. But let's not, you know, dwell on this idea that we've become this, you know, NHL trade deadline podcast that Neil and I really wish we had. If you Secretly, yeah, want it to be. Anyway, I want to talk about one of the best sports stories of the year. Full stop. Not just hockey, Chad. It's a it's a sports story. Is it, it Liverpool's just, undefeated record and their chase for perfection? No. Mm. It just happened to be in hockey this past weekend when emergency backup goaltender Dave Ayers was called upon to replace two injured Carolina Hurricanes goalies against the Toronto Maple Leafs on Saturday night. When you say called upon, they had no goalies. That is correct. And he was like, it's like when you play a pickup football game and there's like the designated QB. He's designated goalie for whichever team needs it. Right, exactly. Yeah, he was. A, he's a 42-year-old practice goalie who drives a Zamboni, among his other duties. He's the arena manager uh, for the Leafs, not, not just for the Leafs themselves, but for their minor league affiliate. Uh, and Where was the major league Zamboni driver? I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Why did they have to dip down into the minor leagues for the Zamboni driver? Uh, but basically, this game, in the middle of a tight playoff race for both teams— saw Carolina suddenly needing to rely on, again, not a professional goalie, a guy who had not played a competitive game in years, and he would have to protect the net for nearly 30 minutes with just a three-goal lead. To your question, Chad, we do need to rewind a little bit. So why would a team need to rely on a literal random guy to play goalie? Well, so there's a rule for this. Teams generally dress two goalies for any given game. And if they had a little bit of warning, they could also get like a minor leaguer affiliated with the team to come and play with for them in case of an emergency. But sometimes it's not possible. And that was the case on Saturday night where the first goalie was injured. I think it was a defenseman just fell on him awkwardly. He he hurt himself. He had to David leave. Ayers paid him off. It was a, I mean, it was a possibly. kind of thing. Um, then the the backup goalie, the backup goalie, not not very smart uh, in his decision making. He decided to kind of leave the crease and try to go well away from the net to get a puck that was loose while a uh, Maple Leafs player was like barreling down on him at full speed. Uh, predictably, a bad collision happened. He got his helmet knocked off. He got completely just, you know, was unable to continue to play. And so... This is why they have this rule provision that the home team must provide a local goalie available to either club in case of emergency. You might ask, well, why don't they just have like one of the other players strap on the pads and go out there? Well, goaltending is such a specialized skill that even an obscure, you know, amateur like Dave Ayers would be preferable to having a regular skater strap on the pads. Sometimes they'll have like ex-professional goalies that you like remember from your childhood <laughs> i i am not joking in this case who are like in their 50s be the emergency goalie uh, uh if yeah i have lots of questions i'm just gonna sort of keep peppering you with them okay. one jeff and neil how much money would i have to pay you to face a professional hockey shot as a goalie in a professional hockey league? oh you wouldn't have to pay me anything i would, I would yeah i would do it i would do that you okay. know how much Good, yeah. ads they're wearing I mean, literally, every, I've heard earlier every, in the show. Every yeah. part of your body is protected. 
You'll be fine. Yeah, there's no it, danger. Especially there's these no risk. days. It's like Safe. two people's worth compared to before. I heard that um, somewhere. So, okay, that was my first question. Second question. If a former goalie is your coach, mm-hmm. as Patrick Waugh, I think, was a coach. He was, yeah. yeah. Could Waugh, for example, put on the pads instead of the emergency goalie? No. Yeah, he he couldn't unless he was designated to be the emergency goalie, which would open up the possibility that the opponent's coach played net uh, during a game, and I just don't think that would happen. But I do have an anecdote along those lines later on in the rabbit hole. Okay, one more question, then I'll shut up. I have one question also, and then I'll shut up. I don't understand. Every team has a goaltending coach. I pulled up a list of the goaltending coaches currently in the NHL. I'm seeing Sean Burke, Chris Terreri. Dwayne Rolson, yeah. these guys, Johan Hedberg. I thought you could have told me Johan Hedberg was still playing goalie. These guys are all, you know, seasoned, albeit old, probably for the current NHL. But they, why not them? Why not them? Well, Great some question. of these guys, some of these guys have actually been listed as a team's emergency goaltender, and sometimes they've even put on the pads because the the starter got injured and sat at the end of the bench even though they didn't get called upon to come into the game. But Dave Ayers... Tell me what happened when Dave Ayers came in the game, Neil. Yes, he did have to come into the game, and he had to play 29 minutes protecting a 4-1 lead, but with a goalie that like is not a professional in net. Seems kind of like a, a, a tough task. Uh, Ayers, I should say, he often faces the Maple Leafs as a goalie in practice, but the last time he had played competitively was five years ago in a men's senior league where he allowed more than seven goals a game and had a, an 0-8 and record. Now he's going to have to face some of the most talented scorers in the league. Have you looked at that Toronto roster? And so he instantly allowed two goals on his first two shots. And who could blame him? Who could blame him? Uh, so that cut the lead to, to one goal. And it looked really hopeless for Carolina. I mean, the whole third period, they were going to have to last with this dude in net that had just given up these goals. But somehow, the miraculous happened. It was on the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice also, <laughs> which is just wild. But the Hurricanes defense, they rallied around him in the third. They pretty much kept him from really having to make any kinds of tough saves. He also did, he did stop eight Pucks coming his way uh, after giving up those two goals. The Hurricanes also scored a couple goals. The Maple Leafs played some highly uninspired, mistake-riddled hockey. Uh, and together, all of those factors combined for Carolina to be able to hang on and win the game 6-3. to three. Good for David Ayers! Yeah, and, and it was a great sight after the game. So he was wearing a Hurricanes jersey. At first, he was wearing the blue Maple Leafs pants, though, <laughs> uh, in the second period. They eventually got him red pants to match the uniform, but he still was wearing blue and white pads. He had a blue and white helmet that matches the minor league affiliate of the Maple Leafs, but he was playing for the Carolina, and he went into the locker room, and he was given a ceremonial shower and, and celebration uh, you know, with water bottles uh, by a bunch of new teammates that he had never met before that night and never would play with ever again. Uh, but I think that's going to be one of the enduring images of the season just because it's such an amazing story. Now, it's not the first time that an emergency goalie has been forced to come in. Uh, this and it, begins your real descent. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So it goes back to this rule change that they put in in 2017 that 
it was sort of a return to an older rule about mandating that this house goalie be present and available to, to either team for every single game. That same year, another Carolina hurricane, coincidentally, uh, an equipment manager named George Alves became the first emergency goalie to play in the modern era. He logged 7.6 seconds in net at the end of a game. I guess if your team name is a catastrophe, then you have to be ready for this sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's just about disaster preparedness. In 2018, a guy named Scott Foster, no relation, I'm assuming, Jeff, he was a literal accountant, which I think makes the story even better, a rec league goalie. He was an emergency goalie. He had to come in, and he turned aside all seven shots that he faced. He played 14 minutes. That had sort of before uh, Dave Ayers had been the gold standard for um, emergency goalies. And then there are some other guys, like a uh, Philadelphia Flyers practice rink employee named Eric Simborski, who suited up, sat on the bench when the number one goalie went down, but he never quite was able to enter the game. And fun fact on Simborski, uh, the Flyers actually tried to get him into the game for the final 24.5 seconds of the game that he was the emergency goalie in. And he actually went out on the ice, but the referee told them, no, you can't do that. Lame. Uh, his, his excuse was, look, we can't let you take advantage of the, you know, teams will try to take advantage of this rule if we, if we let you oh, for garbage time put away. in someone in garbage time when the other uh, goalie is not actually hurt but you know philly fans booed and maybe for the first time ever it was actually justifiable uh uh, when when they didn't let him uh come in the nhl does have a rich history of this kind of thing i found uh maybe the most notable case was back in 1928 when the new york rangers coach 44 year old lester patrick put himself into a game and this was not a game like the game that Dave Ayers went into it was game two of the friggin Stanley Cup finals <laughs> he had never played goalie before uh, but the normal goalie Lorne Chabot he was injured by a puck to the eye and so Patrick again age 44 never played before he put on the pads went out there he told the team boys don't let an old man down <laughs> and then he played 40 40- quote what you just that said. was a direct quote he played 46 minutes and only allowed one goal. And how many pucks to the he, eye? He, Zero pucks to the eye. That's the impressive thing. Who knows how many pucks he, he took to the eye but still stayed in there. Um, he stopped either 18 or 19 shots. The, it's, it was 1928. They don't know for sure. But he helped the Rangers <laughs> win the game. Got to adjust that. that we got to adjust the save percentage uh, that he had. Um, but they won the game in overtime and then... They actually got a real replacement goalie for the next game, but they ended up winning their first Stanley Cup. Uh, so Dave Ayers, you know, he's he's not quite in the same category as Lester Patrick, especially since Hockey Reference gives the Hurricanes only a 3% chance of winning the Cup. But they are at 71% to make the playoffs, in part because of winning that game against Toronto. And he really achieved instant folk hero status. He was the first emergency goalie in history to get credit for a win in an NHL game. So that had me thinking, I wanted to open up the discussion, what comparisons can we draw in other sports? What would the equivalents in like football or baseball be? Or is this just such a weird quirk of hockey, which has its share of weird quirks, that there isn't a great comparison to be had in other sports? I looked into this. You would think football would be the with the, the highly specialized nature of, of positions. You would think football would be. But the truth is, like, if if two quarterbacks get hurt, every team has an emergency quarterback, and there usually is a guy like Julian Edelman or you know Antoine Randall somewhere on the roster who yeah, it's usually like a receiver, right, who played college, college quarterback. quarterback. And this happened, you know, like 
a couple times in history, Brian Mitchell, the famous Redskins uh, and Eagles kick returner, was forced in when uh, you know both of the Redskins quarterbacks got injured and he had to play. Tony Dungy, famously the you know the longtime coach, became the only player when he was a rookie on the uh, Steelers. Terry Bradshaw and Terry Bradshaw's backup got hurt and he had to come in and play quarterback and he's the only player in history to both throw an interception and catch an interception in the same game so that's uh pretty remarkable that's an amazing stat and then you have kickers but i think what happens this happened uh a couple years ago with the eagles when uh, it was their kicker jake elliott got hurt they, they didn't have a kicker i think they had some like reserve linebacker was technically the emergency kicker Usually, either the punter can kick uh, reasonably well. Yeah, you'd think the punter could could do a job. The thing is about what happened with Doug Peterson in that Eagles game, because I remember it, is that they just stopped kicking. You don't actually have to kick in the NFL. They go for two every time. I mean, you do for the kickoffs. Um, and I think the linebacker did do the kickers, the kickoffs in, in that game. But they went for two, and they, you know, if the punter gets hurt, you don't really have to punt if you don't want to. Um, so it doesn't. Whereas you don't really have that option with goalie. I was thinking about baseball, and what came to mind were the players during the strike who became pitchers who were like had their own careers basically outside of um, baseball before they became pitchers oh, in like, baseball during like the strike. Scabs, yeah, during... yeah, and I, I, that feels like as close as we've gotten in baseball to this sort of thing happening. Yeah, uh, or you know, have there been cases? Surely there have been somewhere like. The catcher and the backup catcher were injured, and somebody who hadn't caught since like high school. Yeah, but they're still had players. The, 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 the thing about Ayers is he wasn't on the team. Yeah. And that's what makes it special. He wasn't actually on the team. Yeah, that's right. It would be like there would be some kind of, you know, after the two catchers get hurt, if a baseball team just like went to the crowd and was like, hey, has anybody caught before? Okay, get in there. It would be like, yeah, if Fireman Ed came down yeah, from right. the stands <laughs> and, and played quarterback and for the Jets, yeah. which could happen. Uh, All right, let's uh, leave it there, and we'll work on getting Fireman Ed in the studio for next week's show. Uh, And I think that'll that'll do it for this week's show. He'll be butt-fumbling in no time. Hey! So that is it for this week's Hot Takedown. Thanks for suffering through my dulcet tones. Sarah's more mellifluous voice will be back with you in the feed next Tuesday. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Better yet, tell a friend. That's how you really can get this show soaring tell a friend this is the moment to tell a friend hey that that show hot takedown talks about sports in both a smart and approachable way and there's self-effacing chatter often towards the end of the show uh be sure to review and rate the show in your favorite podcasting app it helps others discover the program you can email us at podcast538.com to let us know what you think our podcast producer is grace lynch our podcast control room impresario is Tony Chow. The podcast commissioner for 538 Podcasts is me, Chad Matlin. As I said, Sarah's going to be back next week. For Neil, Jeff, and Meg, I'm Chad Matlin. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. Jeff hung up on us. Wow. Didn't even wait to hear the end of the credits. <laughs>